Our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 14, and I'm going to be reading from verses 21 to 31. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea and the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so, they fear, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant, Moses. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the privilege, again, of coming before You in worship. We thank You for Your Scriptures, Father. And we know the promise that You give to us, that as we read them and as we reflect on them, we learn more about You. We learn more about ourselves And in the process, our lives become changed. So, Father, we pray for your spirit to work in our hearts now as we meditate upon your word. In Christ's name, amen. You know, as I reflected this week, I was reminded of the fact that life is full of all sorts of moments that I like to call identity-shaping moments. These are moments or things that happen to us that end up shaping who we are and, and, and how we even define ourselves to other people. And I, as I looked back on my life, I thought of many things that have happened to me throughout my life that, that helped define and shape who I am as a person. The day I got married, my identity changed. I changed from a man who was single, and I took on the title of husband. When my kids were born, I, I no longer uh, was just a husband. I now was a father. When I was ordained, it was a very special and unique day. And at the end of that day, I could now be called a pastor. These were all moments that happened to me that shaped my identity so that when people ask me now and they say, well, who are you? Tell me a little bit about yourself. I tell them, well, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. These were moments that shaped me really for the rest of my life. And life is full of them. They're full of good things that happen to us that make us who we are, but they're full of sometimes very tragic and sad things that shape who we are too. Maybe it was 
the death of someone that was very close to you or a harsh word spoken to you, something negative that happened in your life that shaped you in a certain direction or in a certain way. And all those things that happen to us make up who we are as people. They are identity-shaping moments. But what's also interesting is sometimes as communities or as large groups of people, we have identity-shaping moments as well. This past Friday, we celebrated the 4th of July. And the 4th of July, that original 4th of July, was, was something that happened in history that defined our identity as a nation. And every time we celebrate the 4th of July, whether we go to a parade or we watch fireworks or we shoot them off in our backyard illegally, whatever it is, those are ways that we express our identity as people that live in this country, that people that are a part of this nation. And every time we celebrate the 4th of July, we celebrate our identity as a country that is free. Well, the Exodus story, the story that we've been looking at, is another identity-shaping, powerful story that is centered around this idea of freedom. You know, the Old Testament, if you read it at all, the Old Testament is really a story about God in relationship with a particular nation. If you read in the book of Genesis, God comes to one man. He comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to, you're my chosen people. I'm going to align myself. I'm going to be in relationship with you as a family. And you as a family are going to grow into this great and amazing nation. And I'm going to be your God and you are going to be my people. But when you start the book of Exodus that we just read from, you realize that this family that grew into a great nation had come into a very bad spot. And they were enslaved by the Egyptians, one of the most powerful nations of the ancient world. And they used these Hebrew people, these Israelites, as their slave force. And the story that we read this morning, that we've been reflecting on the past couple weeks, and as we come to this story this morning, we come to the climax of that story in which God saves this nation, these people, from their enslavement. And it was an incredible identity-shaping moment for this nation. A moment that defined who they were going to be as they lived out their history and as they lived out their story in the ancient world. And it was all about their freedom being purchased from enslavement. There's three things that this event accomplished in terms of shaping the identity of these ancient people. And Lord willing, I hope that we'll see as we look at what it meant for them We'll see what it means for you and I as we shape our identity as people and ultimately as people of faith. The first thing that we see is that their identity as a nation was rooted in terms of their relationship with God. Their identity was rooted in their relationship with God. As I said before, God made a promise to these people. It was a very special promise in which he came to them and he said, I am going to be your God and you will be my people. In effect, God was saying, I am committed to be in a powerful relationship with you. It didn't mean that God was unavailable to other nations or that uh, he closed himself off to other nations. It simply meant that he had chosen to have a very special relationship with these people. But when the book of Exodus opens up, the people had largely forgotten about this promise. 
They'd largely forgotten about God. God had been silent for a 400-year period, and the people had really forgotten about him. They no longer reflected on him. They no longer thought about themselves as people that were lived in relationship with God. But God did not forget his promise. God never forgets his promise, and he didn't forget his promise for these people either. And when the book of, he, of, of, of uh, Exodus opens up, the Hebrews are crying out to this God. They're crying out because they're desperate. They've been enslaved. They've been victimized by harsh treatment by a powerful nation. And they were crying out to God to deliver them. And God heard their prayer and chose to act. He remembered his promises and he chose to act powerfully for their deliverance. You know, God's relationship with his people uh, was purely by his grace. It wasn't that these people, these Hebrews, these Israelites were any better than any other nation. It didn't mean that they were more righteous or they were uh, uh, more holy in God's sight. They were simply to be an object of God's grace. And what they begin to do throughout the first chapters of the book of Exodus is they begin to learn more and more about this God who has promised himself to them. And what they learn is that this God is a defender of the weak. You see, the Hebrews, the Israelites, they had no military. They had no strength. They had no land. They had no pedigree whatsoever. And they had absolutely nothing to call their own. They were the weakest of nations enslaved by the strongest of nations. They were weak And they were helpless. There was nothing that they could do to change their situation. So God had to come to their aid. And what we read about is that the God of the universe, the most powerful God, comes to the aid and comes to the defense of this people who are unable to help themselves. And what we saw over the past couple weeks is, is God marshals the forces of creation through these really intense plagues that keep rolling out one after another. And he does each and every plague in order to demonstrate his great power. But as you read, Pharaoh's heart with every plague becomes more hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So the next plague becomes more and more intense. And what you see Pharaoh doing is setting up his power against the very power of God. My family this week had uh, an opportunity to go to the beach. We don't normally get an opportunity to go to the beach. So when we had it, we, we, went, we went for it. And uh, my kids have, have had limited access to actually swimming in the ocean. So we took them, and the, and the first time that we got there, they were very tentative about getting into the water and uh, really nervous about it because they'd never really swam in the ocean before. But as the days went on, they got more and more comfortable with swimming in the ocean. So they created this little game, especially my boys. What they would do is they would get into the surf, and they would, they would stand uh, and, and get their legs set and try to take on the wave. And they would, they would match their power and say, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand tall and not let this wave knock me down. And of course, they would stand there and the first couple of waves would come and, and they would stay standing and they would feel like it was a great victory. But as the waves got stronger and stronger and stronger, they realized that their power was no match whatsoever for the power of the sea and the power of the ocean. You see, what Pharaoh was doing is he was flexing his muscles at God. 
He was saying, I'm more powerful than you. And each round of the plagues, this was God's power against Pharaoh's power was becoming more and more intense. It was like several rounds in the old Rocky movies, if you've ever seen them, until the final plague when God's power overwhelms Pharaoh and Pharaoh relents. And he sends the people away and he says, you are now free. What's interesting is as the people leave, as they are uh, freed from their enslavement, and as they, they leave what, all that they've known for their entire lives, they, it's, the scriptures tell us that they get out into the wilderness, and they're probably wondering at this point, okay, what do we do now? Now that we've been freed, where do we go? What do we do now? Well, what the scriptures do is they tell us that God showed up in a very physical way. The scriptures tell us that God showed up as a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. So that the, when, the, when the Israelites, the Hebrew people, didn't know where to go, all they had to do was follow this very physical manifestation of God. All they had to do was follow that cloud during the day and follow the pillar of fire at night. Wouldn't that be nice? Sometimes I've often reflected on that. When we sit and, and think about our life of faith and we sometimes wonder what God wants us to do and we wish he would show up, And just show us what to do. Well, the Israelites had that. They had this very physical manifestation of God. So much so that they never had to question whether God was even present. All they had to do was look at the top of the camp and realize that God was with them in a very powerful way. It was a very physical reminder that God was in relationship with them. But it's also a symbol It was a symbol to not only to them, but to you and I, that God is present and that he desires to be in relationship with you and I. You see, these Old Testament people, these Hebrews, they were real, actual people that lived in history, but they are also a picture for us. They are a picture for us who are believers in Jesus Christ. They're a picture to show us what a relationship with God really looks like. To show us that our identity, above all other things, has to be rooted in our relationship with the God of the universe. You know, the reality is that that we seek to root our identity in all sorts of, of different things. We try to find meaning in all sorts of things. We try to build the foundation of our life into all sorts of things. And if you had a moment, just sit where you are and reflect on your own life. Reflect on what are the things that I have rooted my life in? What are the things that define me? What are the things that I build the foundation of my life upon? You see, we can root our entire identity in our work, in our jobs. That's a a typical male problem often. We can root our identity in our intellect. We can root our identity in our looks. We can root our identity in being liked by others. But ultimately what the scriptures tell us is that our identity must be rooted above all other things in our relationship with God. We know this is true because God knitted us. He created us to to be in relationship with him, to have that relationship be the ultimate relationship that exists in our life. And when we don't build our lives on him, when we don't seek to, to root our identity in our relationship with him, 
then we have to deal with ultimate dissatisfaction because all those other things that we try to root our lives in ultimately will not satisfy us. But you also see in the ancient Israelites that their identity was not just rooted in their relationship with God, but it was also rooted in the salvation that was accomplished for them in their relationship with God. You see, this pillar of fire that that they were supposed to follow led them all the way to the Red Sea, or what's traditionally been known as, as the Sea of Reeds. And the scriptures tell us that as soon as they arrive at this sea, they begin to hear something in the faint distance. They turn around and to their horror, they realized that Pharaoh has changed his mind. That he no longer wants to allow the Hebrews to have their freedom, but he wants to bring them back. So he marshals all of the forces of his military, 600 plus chariots, to pursue after the Israelites and to bring them back into captivity. So as the Hebrews turn around and they see this great cloud of smoke coming from all these horses that are moving to intercept them, and then they turn around and see that their backs are against the wall, they realize that they are trapped, that there is no place for them to go whatsoever. And because of that, they are thrown into panic. They are thrown into fear. They don't know what's going to happen. Their their, their best case scenario is that they are brought back into slavery, but they also realize that they could be slaughtered in this very moment, so they start to panic and fear. And then Moses steps up and says these powerful words. He says, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. And of course, as we read in the story, at that moment, God sends a very powerful wind that creates a, a, that creates a dry ground in between two walls of water that come up and the, and the Hebrew people get to cross through this sea on dry land. The scriptures tell us that the Egyptians pursue the Hebrews through this sea, and as soon as the Hebrews escape on the other side, those walls of water come crashing down and destroy the Egyptian people. This moment, this powerful moment in which God saved his people, becomes the defining moment for the Hebrew people for the rest of their existence. From generation after generation, fathers would tell sons and grandfathers would tell grandsons about this event in which God parted the Red Sea in order to accomplish the salvation of His people. At the point in which they were most helpless, at the point where things looked most bleak, God showed up in the most powerful way in their history and accomplished their salvation. You know, the truth is, just like Israel, our own salvation comes at the moment when we recognize that we are most helpless. Our salvation comes in the moment where we realize that we have nothing to offer God, 
It comes in the moment when we realize that, that there's nothing that's good about us in order to get us into heaven or to merit favor before God. Our salvation comes when we come to our most helpless moment and recognize just how weak we are before God and how powerless we are to save ourselves. And when we come to that place, when we come to that place of helplessness and weakness, then God shows up powerfully and saves our lives. We, and He saves us from the enslavement of sin. He's, and we experience the freedom that we so deeply desire. And when that moment of salvation comes for you and I, that moment becomes the most defining moment of our lives. Because what the Scriptures tell us is when we come to that helpless place, when we experience personal salvation in our relationship with God, the Scriptures say we pass from death to life. We are no longer enemies of God. We become sons and daughters of God. And when that salvation happens in our hearts and lives, it becomes the most defining moment that has ever happened to us and will ever happen to us. Because we cross from a place of spiritual death to a place of spiritual life. You see, we root our identity not just in our relationship with God, But we root our identity in a relationship with God who has accomplished salvation for you and I. But finally what we see out of Israel is that their identity was rooted in this struggle of faith. Now when we read this story, this Red Red Sea story to our kids, there's always something that we kind of leave out. And you don't always recognize it when you first read the story or when you reflect on it. But what you realize is, is if God was really leading these people by this pillar of fire by night and this cloud by day, then you realize that God actually led them into this place. God was the one who was responsible for leading them into this place where they felt trapped between the Red Sea and between this army that was coming. And you, you, sit, you, you, you sit here and you reflect, why would God do this? Why would God lead them into this moment that seems so helpless? Why would God lead them into this place where it seems like their lives are about to end? Well, he does it really for two reasons, the scriptures tell us. He does it, one, to display his great glory. But he also does it to help the Israelites with their faith. You see, God was leading them into this trap. One commentator said, it was as if God led them into a blind alley with walls on both sides and they couldn't go backwards. They were caught between an uncomparable, unconquerable army and an impassable sea. Why did he do it? Yes, he did it to display his glory, but he also did it in order to build the faith of these people that barely knew him and barely knew anything about him. And what's interesting about this life of faith is that God often moves you and I into places that are just like that. He did it for Israel and often he does it for you and I. Sometimes he leads us into places where we feel most hopeless into places where we look at the circumstances of our lives and we wonder, how am I going to get out of this? 
How am I going to be saved from this situation? And often those are the moments where God shows up in the most significant and the most powerful ways. And all he does is he asks us to step out in faith in those moments. You know, I've often wondered, and and, uh, my wife and I were reflecting on this this week, uh, about the first person who stepped into the Red Sea on that dry ground. Have you ever thought about that for for a moment? You know, we all, I don't know if you've ever been skydiving or done anything adventurous with your friends, but often we come to adventurous situations and we go with our friends and then we look around and say, all right, who's going to be first? Who's the first one to jump out of this plane? Who's the first one to step into this adventure? And I can imagine the Israelites at this point are like, all right, God's made a path. We can see it. Who's the first person that's going to take this step of faith? Who's the first person that's going to start walking in this path through the sea and look around and see the walls of water that exist on either side of them? You see, this was an incredible step of faith for these Israelites. And if it were me, I'd be looking around and saying, well, maybe we can just talk to Pharaoh. Maybe we can reason with him. Maybe we can establish some sort of treaty or some sort of peace treaty. I would have been trying to negotiate my, uh, my, my safety here in this situation rather than have to walk through this incredible sea. And maybe the Israelites were doing that. There is some hint that they were doing that. But Moses steps in and says, no, take that step of faith. Walk through that dry ground. Walk through that path that is in front of you. And the Israelites did that. They took this incredible step of faith. The gospel teaches that the only thing that's required for you and I, for our own personal salvation, is this thing called faith. This step that we have to take where we realize that we can't save ourselves anymore. That left to ourselves, we are helpless. That left to ourselves, that we are weak. And we need this thing called faith in order to enter our relationship with God. And even the scriptures tell us that even that thing called faith, even the ability that helps us to make that step, is itself a gift of God's grace. A gift that comes from above. Now, often people have mistakenly thought that to enter a relationship with God, they need to have perfect faith. That they need to have all their ducks in the row. They don't need to have, they can't have any doubts. They can't have anything that, that they seem to wrestle with or, or any lingering thing that makes them hesitate. They need to have perfect faith. But what you see in the Israelites is incredibly imperfect faith. What you see is a group of people that struggle with this idea of having faith in a God that they largely cannot see. And what you see out of them is that this thing called faith is much more of a struggle than it is an easy road. You know, the name Israel, which is, which is what the nation's name was, literally means one who struggles or one who wrestles with God. And what I'm becoming more and more convinced of in my life is that this fat path of faith is not an easy path, but it's a path in which we often have to wrestle with God in this adventure of faith. And what he does is he moves us into situations often that require even greater faith. And all he does is say, wrestle with me in this. 
struggle and stretch and work through your faith as you work through these most difficult circumstances of your life. One of the most beautiful things that, he, that, it, that is true of our relationship with God is that he doesn't require perfect faith. Instead, he invites us to wrestle with him in this faith walk as he leads us into places that will grow our faith more and more. I have to say personally that um, deciding to start a new church was probably the most substantial step of faith that I've ever had to do in my whole life. If you're new to us this morning, uh, you may not know, but this is a, a young church. It's a church that we started almost less than a year ago, and, and uh, we felt called particularly uh, to be church planners, to, to move out from a church that we were very comfortable in and, and uh, a, a church that was very good to us, and to start a brand new church in an area that didn't have one. And it was this incredible step of faith for my wife and I to even do this. And I can remember one point when we were really reflecting on this and we'd, we'd made the decision that we were going to do this, that a good friend came up to me and, and said, uh, he was a church planner himself, so he knew from experience, and he, and he said, I want, I want to talk to you. And, and we went out and, and we had breakfast together, and uh, he had been down this kind of church planning road before me for a long time, and he said, he looked at me very honestly and he said, uh, you need to know that this thing that you're about to do is going to be the thing that stretches your faith more than anything you've probably ever done in your life before. Because the reality is God may be calling you to plan a church that is wildly successful. Or he could be calling you to do something that you will ultimately fail at. And you need to realize that he could be calling you to one of those two things. But what he is calling you to do, whether it's a wild success or whether it's an abysmal failure, what he is calling you to do is to step out in faith. And he will stretch your faith all throughout this process. And his words, I didn't want to listen to it at the time. I was all excited about what we were about to do. But his words were very, very true. Because whether it's church planning or whatever, it's whatever circumstance that is confronting you in your life right now. It could be a wild success. It could be an absolute failure. But what God is doing is calling you to step out in faith. He's calling you to enter into this path of faith, to enter into this adventure where you have to wrestle with your doubts, where you have to wrestle with your insecurities. You have to wrestle with your belief and your unbelief all at the same time because that's what this life of faith is really all about. What makes faith hard is that by nature, everything isn't spelled out for us. It is a struggle. It is difficult because God doesn't always give us all the answers. And sometimes he leads us into places where we feel trapped. And it's why our identity needs to be one who wrestles with God in this adventure of faith. So you see that Israel rooted their identity in a God who was a defender of the weak. They rooted their identity in the salvation that was accomplished for them. And they rooted their identity in this struggle of faith. And God calls you and I to root our identity in the very same thing. You see, if we choose to to root our identity in other things, if we choose to 
root our identity in lesser things, then those things will end up enslaving us. If your identity is rooted in your job or your career, when you fail, then you will be crushed by it. If your identity is rooted in your looks, one little criticism from someone else will totally ruin you and destroy you. If your identity is rooted in other people's opinion of you or being liked by others, then one little snub will bring you to your knees. But if your identity is rooted in your relationship with God, then you can never be crushed Because He is our God and we are His people. We may fail at our job. We might feel the sting of criticism. We might be snubbed by other people. But all these things ultimately will never crush us. Because beyond all things, who we are is is rooted and identified in our relationship with the God of the universe. A God who promises to be in relationship with with us, a God who promises his steadfast love and his faithfulness to us, a God who promises to never let us go. See, our story tells us about how God made a miraculous way of salvation for the Israelites through the Red Sea. But he also makes an equally miraculous way of salvation for you and I by sending his very own son in order to die on our behalf. The gospel story tells us that Jesus came to this earth. He lived a perfect life and was executed on the cross. He was swallowed up in the sea of God's judgment that you and I deserved. And because of Christ, God made a way of salvation for you and for I. You know, the the gospel calls us to stop building our lives on lesser things. To stop rooting an identity in things that will never ultimately satisfy us. And instead, it calls us to step out in faith and embrace Christ who gave his life for you and I. To recognize that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Spiritually, we are just as helpless as those Israelites were that day. And instead, to step out into this adventure of faith knowing that God is with us and he has made his salvation available to you and to me.